Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, Reed Goosens here, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's Guide to U.S. Real Estate. I hope you're having a great day. Thanks for dropping by and tuning in and continuing to grow your investing knowledge of U.S. real estate. Each week, we come to you live from Los Angeles, California, talking about all things related to U.S. real estate investing and how you too can successfully break into the U.S. market as an international investor, just like I did. Each episode, we'll be interviewing industry leaders, real estate entrepreneurs, and good old-fashioned go-getters who can help provide you the tools to start successfully investing in the U.S. So let's get into today's show. One of the biggest questions I get asked on a constant basis is, are there U.S. lenders out there that are willing to lend to foreign nationals to help buy U.S. investment properties? And the answer is absolutely. On today's show, we have Matthew Owen, who will be demystifying lending to foreign nationals and discussing a few lending options available to those international investors looking to purchase U.S. real estate. With that being said, g'day, Matthew, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. How's everything going? Good. Thanks, mate. Listeners, Matthew is the founder of OCG Properties, a company that specializes in equity and cash flowing real estate investments that cater to the international investor. Matthew graduated from UC Santa Barbara with a bachelor's degree in economics with an emphasis in accounting. Matthew earned his CPA license while performing audit and taxation engagements at various CPA firms once he graduated, working primarily with large real estate clients. Matthew made the move to focus on real estate investing full-time, and he currently specializes in value-add, cash-flowing, residential, and multifamily real estate investments, which has purchased and renovated over 450 properties. Matthew's company works with investors in multiple ways to acquire real estate and high cash flow markets around the U.S. He also helps investors develop various forms of cash flow through syndications run by professional operators, promissory notes, and other real estate-related assets here in the U.S. With Matthew's background as a CPA, his clients benefit from the knowledge of real estate taxation and due diligence, legal and investment structuring, and long-term investment planning and analysis. Matthew, you have a great background to aid international investors break into the U.S., but before we jump into it, can you tell the listeners something that most people might not know about you unrelated to real estate investing? Um, you know, I have a six-month-old son at home, so I'm, I'm challenged with the work-life balance right now, so it's absolutely amazing being a new father, and you know, it makes you want to strive for, for more, for more financial and freedom and and passive cash flow because you want to spend time with family and and have a, a sooner retirement, you know? So it's pretty right. fun. Right. <laughs> we'll, we'll just start off with congratulations. What's his name? His name is Christian. So Christian Kai Owens. <laughs> well, welcome Christian to the world. <laughs> and you said he was six months old? Yes, that's correct. So that's my, my wife just made us take six month pictures the other day. So that's <laughs> really fine. <laughs> I feel like everyone's having a baby at this time of year. I've got a lot of friends like that. <laughs> so listeners, today's show is all about demystifying how international investors can obtain financing for their US investment properties. Right. So Matthew, with that being said, you work a lot with international investors. Do you want to walk us through how you help investors buy turnkey properties and aid them in, in obtaining financing to buy their investment properties? 
Absolutely. That's that's not a problem at all. And and to give you guys a little more background on my experience dealing with international clients, I've dealt with, with clients all over the world. I've actually uh, sold or invested with or joint ventured with hundreds of investors in different markets. And so, you know, there's a lot of key features going back and forth with the tax implications, with the legal structuring components, you know, and with the lending that are a little different than someone that may be here in the U.S., and so, you know, what I do is I go through and I buy these value add uh, multifamilies and single family properties and I'll renovate them. I will tenant them and then I will either hold them with investors or joint venture with investors or go through and resell them to other investors that want to own that cash flow as well. And uh, through doing that, there was a big need for financing. And uh, a lot of international investors were having that exact same problem saying, how do I actually go and get? U.S. financing here for these different investments. And, you know, there's there's a lot of different strategies you can do, and they're different for the single family versus the multifamily aspect of things. So on the single family side, I actually created a financing structure where investors could come to me, put 50% down on a property, and then actually go through and uh, purchase the property uh, from me. And then I give them the loan where I am the bank. Fantastic. The transaction and, you know, bringing that financing in house uh, is is very key. And the, and the way that that's accomplished is just through other auxiliary investors or other banks that are mm-hmm. interested in investing in those notes, uh, those those loans to those international clients. You know, most of the time when you're dealing with an international client, the lenders might look at it as a little more risk involved. Right. Because. Mm-hmm. You know, they're so far away, they may not have U.S. social security numbers Mm -hmm. and things like that to or credit to uh, be able to kind of rely on as a uh, viable due diligence phase for the lender. Mm -hmm. And so because of that, most lenders are looking at the value of the property as their collateral, as their safety net. And so that's why I require, you know, 50% down on these things, because I want to make sure that I'm protected on the loan. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, I don't have to, if if someone doesn't pay me my loan, uh, then I have recourse against the property and actually enough equity to make it make sense on that aspect. You sort of mentioned a little bit about the requirements that an international investor needs. You said 50% down. What else are you requiring from the international investor? Obviously, you said that you're selling your product or your your deals to them. So you know the deal inside and out. So you have more confidence that they will be able to pay or the cash flow from the property will be able to pay. But is there some sort of, is there any other requirements that you need from international investors to execute on a 50% down loan? Uh, yes, there is. But, you know, as long as they have the 50% down or the, the capital down payment, mm-hmm. in my eyes, they're pretty much qualified at that point. It just becomes a documentation issue. And the, the reasons uh, why the documentation is needed is because when you're going through and, you know, if I go uh, loan someone the capital for it, I want to be able to bring another investor to the table mm-hmm. and sell that note off to them or have them invest with me in that promissory note. And so what I have to do is do what a typical lender might do here in the United States when they're qualifying a, uh, a traditional uh, a buyer here in right. the U.S. versus international. Um, and that typically comes in the form of tax returns for the last two years. Mm-hmm pay stubs Mm -hmm. for the last three months, bank account statements showing their liquidity and that they have money in the bank uh, so that they, I know they're not in default. 
getting a 1003 loan application yep. uh, and all of their information down uh, so that, you know, and that's just a few of the items. There's, you know, a list of maybe 10 items or something along those lines that investors need. And it's just a matter of compiling those that documentation so that when I am when I am interested or if I am interested in selling that note off to recapitalize myself so I can do more loans, mm-hmm. then then I have my do- all my ducks in a row because when I go through and sell that note off, they want to see all of this nice little package all put together for financing purposes right. Um, right. for the acquisition. So that's that's kind of some of the backup documentation that's needed. But other than that, you know, things are good to go on the single family home front. Fantastic. And so for those investors listening, all those international investors listening, what Matthew just described is very commonplace here in the United States, you know, providing 1033 uh, form. Is that correct, Matt? Uh, 1003. 1003. That's just a form, a very common form that you fill out that gives you your financial history. uh, And then you back that up with bank statements, um, pay stubs, as Matt's saying. So Matt, with that being said, do you look at particular countries with more favor than other countries if you're investing with international people? Uh, Not necessarily. Right now, I've actually sold and and invested with over uh, 250 clients out of Japan. Wow. There's some actual uh, bigger differences dealing with Japan than you know, necessarily in, you know, Australia, mm-hmm. where, you know, there's a language barrier difference there. And so that's probably even more difficult uh, to deal with. And, you know, I have to have translation services set up and things like that to be able to go back and forth with the property managers and those properties and any any uh, questions they have on the promissory note or paying it off early or anything like that. And so, you know, when you're dealing with certain countries, it becomes a little bit more difficult. On top of that, the tax treaties become very important as well with that country because Mm -hmm. different withholding requirements for collecting interest or paying interest um, or or, or rents to international client. And so, you know, that that reporting requirement matters substantially. uh, And, you know, there's specific, you know, documentation and and wording that can go into the notes that will, will help with that tax compliance. Right. And for those investors uh, listening, if you're new to the show, we do have another episode where I talk to a tax advisor who talks all about helping international investors. So check out uh, the episode with Brent Green. But Matt, with that being said, what sort of interest rates and terms do you offer? You said 50% down, but what are the interest rates on your loans? So, you know, traditional bank financing right now on a rental property might be around 4.75 to 5.5%. And so typically when you're dealing with international clients, um, I'm usually lending around 7%. And, you know, I'm a professional investor, so I, I'm not, you know, a traditional bank. And so I typically have, you know, around those loan rates. Now, there's other lending sources available also that to international clients that aren't necessarily operators like myself that can provide that type of financing to international clients. And, you know, you can get as low down as, as call it 35 to 40% down, right. uh, depending on the situation. But I'm seeing the same type of rates around the 7% or 7.5% type scenario for international clients. And you can get longer term type financing. I typically provide seven year financing mm-hmm. uh, amortized over 15 years. So it's getting paid off really fast. Right. And, you know, there's other clients out there that can do or other lenders out there that can actually do 30 year fixed rate financing as well. There's some more points and things like that involved in some of those transactions uh, and a little bit different of a vetting process. But Mm -hmm. same idea, though, they're getting the same documentation 
you know, the tax returns, earnings statements, a copy of their passport, any retirement statements or real estate owned information, right. you know, all of those types of things are, are backup for these types of uh, loans. And Matthew, what is the most common misconception that international investors have when they come to you and start inquiring about U.S. properties? There's a big difference and a cultural difference between the countries sometimes where, um, and, and I think the biggest challenge is people not understanding or investors not understanding the flow of, uh, on a monthly basis of how, how the management works, how the contracts are structured, you know, how the closing works. And, and really it's just a learning curve uh, right. that people have over time of how the operations work on any investment property or any loan scenario. Misconceptions are that everything's going to run smoothly all the time. And, you know, having your team on the ground here is one of the most important aspects to investing and understanding what risks can occur and what things to mitigate for yourself because they don't necessarily have a full understanding of real estate investing. They're relying on the experts to kind of help them walk them through some of those, you know, risk, risk levels and making sure that they're protected. Right. And I guess as you're bringing all your clients in-house, you're selling the product that you go out and you find as an investor, you can help walk them through that educational process and help them set up a decent team here or a great team on the ground. Uh, is that not correct? That, that is correct. And, and it's actually, you know, one of the things that I do with a lot of clients, if they, if they work with me directly, then I, I have my team set up already, which I've vetted tons and tons of different, you know, team members that, that finally landed on the right ones, which I can tell you, it's one of the hardest things to develop. Right. And, um, and then if uh, one of the things I do as a consultant with a lot of clients, if they're not investing with me and they're investing outside of my investments, which is absolutely fine as well, I, I help them with those team members and the right t legal and tax structure and the right the right investment analysis for, for them. Right, right. We're a huge proponent on this show of developing a cracking team. Uh, we talk a lot about it. Uh, we, we, you know, the key to most to everyone's success is, particularly in real estate investing, is that you need a good team around you to support you to help you achieve your goals. And we talk a lot about, you know, the different team members. And there's another episode that I do talk about exactly who are the key players you need on your team. But as Matthew is saying, he will help international investors be introduced to those type of team members. So in the intro, Matt, you talked a little bit about how your company partners with international investors on your U.S. deals. How does the financing work uh, if your company can obtain easier financing at a cheaper rate? Do you still bring that in-house or do you go out to more conventional, uh, you go to the street with more conventional loans? You know, um, there's a couple of ways that we do it, and it, it depends on if you're investing in single family versus multifamily or commercial type properties. Mm -hmm. uh, typically, when you're dealing with single family, you have a limited amount of options. There are the uh, there's some very big lenders out there that will actually lend to uh, international clients in blanket pools where investors can come in and buy a bunch of properties and get one big blanket loan over all of them. Right. Uh, and, you know, usually, like I mentioned, you're probably looking at 35 to 55, 60 percent down, depending on, you know, the lender involved and, uh, you know, the properties specifically and things like that. Bet the property in itself. And they put a lot more due diligence on that property because that's their their primary collateral. Right. You know, so they're not going to be able to have a personal guarantee to a degree on an international client because it's going to be very hard to collect, even if they try to get the documentation for it, it's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Right. Uh, now, there's there's other lenders out there that will do one-off individual deals. Mm -hmm. You know, I know of one that typically provides a 30-year uh, amortization 
but it's only a three year fixed. So meaning, meaning the rate is fixed for three years at usually around 7%. And then it fluctuates with LIBOR with the LIBOR rate uh, going forward, but it's fully amortized over a 30 year term. Right. And so you have some interest rate risk there on some of that type of financing. That's why I typically provide a seven year fixed because mm-hmm. I understand the risk tolerance level of of some of the international clients. You know, three years is not a very long time to have, you know, a fixed rate on on some of that product. There is that product out there that can get you fixed. It's just uh, much more difficult to find when you're dealing with uh, international clients versus U.S. clients, just because they're not willing to take on additional risk, at least in their eyes. Uh, due to the distance uh, issue there. Now, on the multifamily side and, and commercial side, things get a little bit easier to deal with. Uh, they're looking at the strength of the investor, okay? And uh, they're also looking at the team that's on the ground in a lot more detail, okay? So, and that's where the partnerships come in, uh, where I am the team, mm-hmm. I have the whole setup, I have the experience. And so when dealing with international clients, it makes it a lot easier to bring in, uh, you know, more of a passive type uh, international client investor that wants to invest in a multifamily with some capital, uh, but, you know, doesn't necessarily have access to the right banking relationships on the ground in any specific market or the ability to discuss it with the banker about how the property is going to be operated and run, because these are all things that concern a commercial lender Mm -hmm. uh, first, and they're not necessarily looking at the strength of the borrower as much as they're looking at the property as well. Uh, But they do want to make sure that borrower has experience and knows how to manage properties or has that team set up in detail, because if they don't, then that's typically when they see, uh, you know, defaults happening on commercial properties when someone is managing it incorrectly, you know, after they've done their homework. And it's actually a lot easier when you do it inside of an entity, inside of an LLC. And most banks will require it to be in an LLC versus your own name when you're dealing with commercial property. And so they want it up and running by itself and its own entity uh, so that they can they can gauge what's going on. They want the bank account for that entity being at their bank so they can see, you know, the income coming through on a monthly basis and things like that to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. So especially, uh, you know, with with interest rates maybe rising in the future and changes happening, they're really interested in uh, protecting themselves on that aspect. Fantastic. And I think one of the great takeaway points that you just mentioned, Matthew, is that when banks look at you know US investment real estate, regardless if you're an international investor or not, the single family model, they underwrite the person who's purchasing the property a lot more than they underwrite the multifamily deal. And the reason that is because banks look at a multifamily deal like a business and it can generate uh, passive income and it can pay off the off the, essentially the mortgage. So, you know, if you have, we talk about this a lot on this show as well, if you own a single family property and, and all of a sudden the tenant gets up and leaves, you have a 100% vacancy and you can't pay that debt. But if you have a 30 or 40 unit property and five people get up and leave, you still have another 25 or 30 units paying down the debt. And that's what the uh, the banks love to see. So Matthew, with that being said, can you talk a little bit about with your multifamily structuring with international investors? You said that you, is there any particular way that you like to cut the pie up? I do a typical joint venture type structure where depending on what the cash flow uh, is on that multifamily and what typically happens is I will go and help with the bank financing. I have direct relationships right now where we have 120 unit under contract, for example, that bank is looking at providing us a 
um, a loan right now at 4.75% for a seven-year term. Usually you're seeing five to 10-year terms, uh, probably gearing more on the end of the five-year term for the banks. And what I do when I'm structuring these is I'm looking at it saying, okay, I'm the operations partner here. And I go through and, and buy it, renovate it, tenant it. And then I bring in a capital investor, usually an international type client that puts up the capital portion of that or the equity portion of that, that the bank won't finance. And that is their contribution to the actual partnership. And we do typically a 75% uh, cash flow split in mm -hmm. favor of the investor yep. and then a 50-50 equity split whenever we decide to actually sell the property and on, on principal reduction on the loan. So, and, and like I mentioned, it's all based on cash flow. It could go as low as 60%. It could go as high as 90% on the cash flow aspect, depending on uh, you know, the, the actual cash flow that is produced from that specific property. And we go in and we buy them, we renovate them, we increase rents on the property and be the whole operations partner, including procuring the financing on the property as well. Fantastic. Uh, so so that that's kind of the structure involved. And it's always inside of an entity where it's, you know, separated and, and independent of uh, other assets and things like that. So Yep, fantastic. My company actually does something very similar to Matthew's company uh, for those listeners out there. But what Matthew is essentially trying to say is that you know investors will provide the down payment, and then Matthew's company or will go out and they'll find the finance, the conventional financing. And because Matthew has a team set up, uh, he has boots on the ground, he has experience, he has all that sort of good stuff. His company then underwrites the loan and takes the risk. However, the investor is a passive investor, but still owns a portion of the property as it's a partnership and the money is secured by real estate. That is correct. Cool. All right, mate, do you want to talk a little bit about turnkey properties? You know, what is it? People hear about that all the time. What is a turnkey property? How do you go in and make it a turnkey property? So there's definitely different variations of turnkey properties. And I say that with kind of laughter under my voice because... You know, you get a lot of people saying, oh, I have a turnkey property for you, and they don't do a good job of making it fully turnkey. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so uh, you have uh, you have properties that, that investors will buy, and they will renovate them and tenant them just like what I do, um, and then they'll they'll sell them to, to other investors mm -hmm. that want that cash flow piece, piece, which can be a great strategy to utilize. Um, at the same time, though, that due diligence on that turnkey provider, as well as the system they've set up, as well as what renovation they've actually done to the property is very, very key. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, some people go through and they just put lipstick on a pig mm -hmm. and, you know, mm -hmm. don't actually go through and uh, do the full renovation. They just make it look pretty and they don't do all the primary functions of a building. Uh, which is uh, very detrimental to clients that buy these uh, turnkey properties. So uh, what I would suggest is anytime you are investing in any type of turnkey asset or property that you, you actually look at the due diligence aspects that are done. For example, you know, how old is the roof, the AC unit, the furnace, mm -hmm. uh, the electrical boxes, all the appliances, uh, the water heater. These are all things that should be completed and done and have a really long-term useful life when you're buying a turnkey asset. So uh, a lot of people go and sell these things that don't have these things done, mm -hmm. and then it becomes detrimental to the overall investment because in year two or three, you have an AC unit go out and it costs you $3,500 for, 
for that, which wipes out a big chunk of your cash flow on a single family home. Right. And so what we've done to counterbalance that is we go get a full inspection report on every single property mm-hmm. and get a side-by-side report of everything done inside that inspection report with all the pictures attached to it. And then we do a full disclosure checklist showing the age of the AC unit, the roof, you know, all of the major items associated with that property that cost a lot of money. And so um, I would suggest everybody go and get a inspection before they ever go buy an asset because you never know what someone will call turnkey. You know, some people will try to get away with the roof if it has five years left. But, you know, a couple of years later, if there's a strong windstorm or a strong rain, uh, you're having to replace the roof at, a, you know, a six grand or five to six thousand bucks a pop, you know, depending on what location you're at in the market. Uh, That's very, very key is that that due diligence aspect. And, you know, turnkey properties can be set up with management ready to go, ready to be already rented with all that primitive maintenance done. It can be a great asset strategy to utilize. uh, But at the same time, you know, that due diligence is always going to be key to make sure that um, you know, you don't get wide-eyed looking at a great investment and then buy something without doing your homework. Right, right. So just to recap there, you go you go and buy a property that needs a bit of work. Your team goes in and does the work. You get it rented and then you get all your management in place and you sell it to the international investor and the property is cash flowing, correct? Right. Or at the same time, uh, I don't always just sell it to the international client. A lot, many times I'll joint venture with that client too, where I don't have to make a profit up front. Mm-hmm. I can joint venture with an investor and we can hold it at my cost. And then we go through and hold it long term and collect the cash flow together. So I have two strategies. One is a hold uh, joint venture hold structure. Another one is a sales structure. And right. you know, my entire goal is cash flow. So I'm either going to take the equity that I just made off of the sale and reinvest it into cash flow or immediately take the cash flow as well. Right, so right. I really, you know, the cash flow goal is very, very key. Covering all your monthly expenses with cash flow is gets kind of exciting when you start <laughs> there, you know? <laughs> exactly. No, it is very exciting. I, lo- I love cash flowing properties. But it also helps you with the confidence with your international investors. And I find um, some of my international guys, if I'm invested in the deal with him or if you're invested with the deal with him, like you JV on a, maybe it's just a single family property, there's a lot more confidence that goes into because your money's on the line as well. And I think that goes back to you, Matthew, as, as a good business guy and, and, and making sure you're doing the right thing by the international investors. So anyone out who's cautious of going and buying something straight up, maybe a joint venture with Matthew and his team on a single family is a great way to get your feet wet to sort of get your sort of education up and, and you, you learn as you go, sort of, so to speak, right? Right. And, and, you know, one other key thing that is really important that I've learned after developing, you know, relationships with hundreds of international clients, it's hard for, for an international client to get that good comfort level about a property. So right. more backup documentation with the inspection reports, with the disclosure checklists, with the before and after pictures, the video of the property in the neighborhood. We even do a full layout of the property and everything with the right square footages and everything. Right, you know, right. having a full package so that, uh, you know, that client or that investor gets what they're looking for and really understands what they're buying. Yeah, yeah. No, exactly. It is very key. And it's also very key, I think, personally, that you know, you're invested in the deal as well when you joint venture. Number number of times I've go to people and they, and they ask me the number of question is, are you involved in this deal financially? And the answer is yes, I am. And that puts their, their mind at, at so much more ease than if they were going to go and do it by themselves. So Matthew, with that being said, what type of asset classes are you purchasing your turnkey properties in and what type of class of the neighborhood? 
first thing is stay out of the ghetto, okay? <laughs> Don't buy low-end housing. It's detrimental. It's not good long-term assets. And, you know, I bought them, and that's how I know. Right. Okay? Same here. <laughs> yeah, you learn lessons the hard way in this business, and they end up costing you money for years and right. not you know, months in this right, time. Right, right, right. So what I typically buy is a little bit higher-end asset. I t- stick with A and B class uh, a- assets and neighborhoods on the uh, single-family home side. Uh, mm-hmm. I will go to C buildings and B neighborhoods uh, in uh, when we're dealing with multifamily. Uh, but you know that neighborhood analysis can be can be very very key. And you know if you buy low end properties in specific markets, uh, you, you can you can be you know losing a lot of money on those. I've re renovated properties three times when there's been vandalism and theft in these lower end housing, and yep. you get a lower quality tenant base that doesn't pay you. Uh, as much as they should. There's a lot more bad debts from those tenants, a lot more tenant turnover, a lot more vandalism and theft and uh, repair issues that occur from the tenants not taking care of your property in a lot of the lower end uh, asset classes. And the tenant base there is pretty much judgment proof. You could go sue them for messing up your property, but the chances are you're not going to collect anything because they don't have any money for you to collect. And so I like to stick with higher end assets because you have a tenant base that if they mess your property up or they do anything negative, you have you know, collateral there in their job and their money that they already have. And so I stick with those higher end asset classes and call it 2,000 to 2,500 square foot houses and, mm-hmm. you know, very decent neighborhoods that are good long-term assets to hold on to versus right. the low end stuff that's really just not good assets in the long run at all right, because right. of some of those issues I outlined. Fantastic. It's actually funny that you said that, Matthew. I, uh, I've invested a few times in some lower end duplexes and triplexes, class B, you know, not B, sorry, D and C neighborhoods. And on paper, they, they, they go really well. You know, they, oh, they're going to cash flow 2000 bucks a month, but you know, you get into it and it doesn't necessarily work out like that. But in saying that, I do have a couple that, you know, it's a little bit hit and miss with those lower class. Um, but you do, they do take a lot more time management, managing them. Uh, and the whole idea of cash flow is to sort of, Get get it go in there, oil the machine up, so to speak, and then get it operating. Uh, maybe cat refi some of your money out if you've improved the increase the value of the property, and then sort of set it on the shelf and let it cash flow for the next ten to fifteen years. Yeah, and you can actually do certain things to actually, if you own one of those lower end properties, to try to mitigate you know the risk level there by you know possibly under renting the property a little bit by call it a hundred dollars a month or something because then you have a better pick of a tenant base that actually. Uh, you know, is fine with that and will stay there long term because they're getting a good deal on rents because turnover kills you in this business. Right. You know, people will line out the pro formas of those and they put a very low vacancy and repairs allowance, but that stuff needs to be bumped up substantially on a lower end asset. Right. Exactly. So Matthew, um, what type of markets are you investing in across the U.S.? Uh, I primary I live in Southern California, mm-hmm. so I actually flip here uh, sometimes when I can find the right margins, and there's very low margins here in California. Uh, I will not hold in California because of the tenant landlord laws here, where they are very in favor of the of the tenant here in California. Right. Uh, so you can mess up as a landlord, and it could cost you six months of rent. Right. Um, but at the same time, there's a great flip market here. I love the flip market as long as the margin is good enough because the pricing is, uh, you know, very, very high here in California right now. Um, I invest primarily in the Memphis, Tennessee market uh, mm-hmm. where I have my own renovation and management company set up and we buy about five houses a month out there right now. And then 
I also invest in Atlanta, Georgia, to a degree where I have 16-unit building, I have a handful of single-family homes, and then we're buying maybe one a quarter out there right now. And you said you uh, early in the show you're looking at a 125-unit property. Whereabouts is that? Yeah, 120 units in Memphis, Tennessee. Okay. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of things wrong with the building. We, we have to put a new roof on. We have to take out a, a bunch of pine trees. Mm-hmm. We have to redo the, the, the entire driveway uh, areas and put in, you know, a gated, gated entrance and uh, sprucing up the whole exterior and interior of the property. So, you know, you're talking a, a very large renovation, you know, $750,000 plus yep. in renovation on a building like this. And that's how we improve the value and increase rents uh, by doing this exterior work as well as interior work on these properties. And a ton of analysis and due diligence goes into these. I just walked it the other day with my inspector before mm-hmm. they did the inspection because I wanted to get their opinion before I even uh, finalized an offer on the property. It's crazy how much trees can kill your your walkways <laughs> and your cement and everything else. Those roots really get you, you know. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of multifamily buildings. You know, cutting your teeth on some some duplexes and stuff is is fantastic. But then when you do the economy of scale and go to some larger assets, it's just really really great. And going in there and increasing the rents by thirty or forty bucks a month or even more on you know a hundred units, it really increases that that cash flow um, and increases the bottom line. So uh, Matthew, do you have that property under under contract right now? Yes, I do. And it's actually really similar. It's just bigger than a 30 unit that I bought down the street where okay. we, we bought the building where we had 10 vacancies. We Every time you buy a building, you usually have to kick out some tenants that aren't paying and things like that. So we, we kicked out another five tenants. So we were 50% occupancy, mm-hmm. rehab those units, renovated all of the exterior of the property, all the wrought iron stairways and landscaping and paint and you know, fascia and all that kind of stuff on a property. And then, uh, and then we went in and increased rents by, you know, uh, about 150 to $200 a month, which wow. increased the value of the property by about $600,000 doing that. And so you, it's amazing once you have, you know, multiple units and you can increase value, you know, how much you can increase that value is very, very key. And just, just quickly, the high level numbers on that, what did you buy that 30 unit property for? So I, I bought the 30 unit for 780,000. Okay. So what's that, what's that per door? That's like, so, yeah, like 25 a door. Something like <laughs> wow. That. Yeah. It was, it was pretty great. We also put about 200 into it. So I'm into it for about a million $65,000, which, you know, I'm, that's 35,500 a door. And we're, we're looking at an average rent of a, or a renting of, for about $17,000 a month right now. Wow. Um, so, uh, which if you think about the rent to the cost ratio, it's a pretty great ratio and we're going to be refinancing. We're in the process of closing on the loan for that one. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we, we're going to be getting about a $900,000 loan and our cash on cash return on the thing is going to be, you know, in the 15 to 20% range plus wow. principal reduction. So wow. it's a, it's a great return on investment and, in, you know, a value add type scenario. Now they're not always that good. Of course, uh, <laughs> you can expect, you know, an 8% plus, uh, cash flow return on investment for you know the investors portion of it, for example, right, right. Um, and and then the operator takes a piece of it as well for doing all that work involved. You know, Fantastic. so Matt. With that being said, what has been your biggest learning experience to date that has shaped your success in the U.S. market? Uh, it's going to go right back to the team. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, I went through a a ton of lenders. I went through five property managers in the beginning before I found managers that I really liked that did what they say they would do. And the managers, 
Um, there's interviews that you should have with every single manager, and you should have a list of interview questions when you're talking with managers to determine, you know, how they manage properties. How do they communicate? What do their accounting statements look like? And do you understand those? Do they know the tenant landlord laws in the area? What what do they charge as a management fee? And what additional costs are there? Do they charge you for advertising? Do they charge you for you know, leasing fees, do they charge you for lease renewals? You know, there's a lot of little things that can go into that and understanding, you know, the contract there, you want to look at it as a business basis. And, you know, I've seen contracts where people try to throw in there, they get a minimum $50 a month, no matter whether it's rented or not on, on a unit. And it makes absolutely no sense when there's, you know, why would someone bleed just to pay the manager and they, they try to tell you that it's uh, it's because they have to do more work when it's vacant. And so my immediate response is, well, what are you doing the rest of the year then? You know? right. <laughs> so, um, so is there a specific mistake that was, that caused you to be so cautious when you and interview these type of uh, property managers moving forward? Was there, was there any one mistake that happened? Well, you know, it, it's multiple mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> And you learn the you learn your lessons the hard way, like I mentioned. But you know what happens is basically, um, you know, one one prop. We went through five, like I mentioned, and mm-hmm. um, we went through one manager that really really bad at accounting, but he was good at leasing and renovations. You know, different managers come with different things. We had one manager that was great, and then all of a sudden they took on like a thousand more units and right. we're very spread thin and then we're very inefficient at that point. So, right. you know, there's things to to pay attention to and to and actively managing the managers is always going to be important whenever mm-hmm. you're investing. Mm-hmm. Once a month when you look at your statements, you you find out any any issues and if everything's run fine, you're you're checking in once a month and seeing how things are going. If everything's not fine and you don't have it rented or there's a repair issue, you want to be talking to the managers once a week to make sure that, you know, they're moving forward with uh, the progress on your investment. And so, you know, that's that's one, you know, large item. Also, the neighborhood analysis aspect and not buying in the lower end areas, I think, is another big learning curve that you go through. Um, Looking at the numbers and being if you're newer, you don't realize some of those problems that exist with that lower end asset class, right. um, you know, and then renovating on, on the multifamily side, we just did a 12 unit building where we had to do the roof, the foundation, all the plumbing, all the electrical, we put in all new windows and doors and had wow. to reframe those windows and doors because all the wood was rotten underneath. Wow. You know, we had to go through, we put tankless water heaters. We had to do the subfloors in the kitchens and bathrooms because there was so much kind of water spillage and leakage from previously. And I learned a ton during that process, as you right. can imagine, yes, renovating yes. a really old building. So paying attention to renovation costs and paying attention to your preventative maintenance and your costs that may be coming down the pike are, I think, very, very important when you're you're investing in definitely you have the most learning in those different areas. That's fantastic. It sounds like you've had a fair, fair share of your war wounds, but they, uh, they make you a better, a better businessman and a better uh, investor. Well, look, with all your experience investing here in the US and aiding international investors break into the US market, I know you're primed to give me a top five investing tips. You ready to get into it? That's no problem. Absolutely. What's the most successful habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? The most successful habit is probably the uh, the mindset. 
-hmm. So through all of the ups and downs of investing, continually honing your mindset, which, which the way you do that is through education and through consistently learning as much as you can. And, you know, looking at your affirmations, what things you want to be doing every single day to move yourself forward and staying in that right mindset so that you can actually be successful. Many people, uh, they have this urge to want to move forward, but they don't ever take action in different aspects right. in their investing career. And so, you know, taking that risk and actually moving forward in different asset classes and different investments can be very key. Too many people spin their wheels and don't do anything mm -hmm. uh, when they're trying to learn to start. And so, you know, honing that mindset to be more of an action mindset, you know, comes from constantly learning, reading books, listening to audio tapes, just trying to take in as much as you possibly can, because it gives you that education, which then gives you the confidence to move forward in the right direction. Fantastic. I love that. I'm a huge proponent of investing not only in your education, but in your mindset and understanding that you can lead a horse to water and you can learn from as many people as you want, but at the end of the day, you have to take action and it comes down to you as the individual. But that's great. Hey, Matthew, what's the most influential tool you use in your real estate business and why? So one of the tools I use is I have like a property analysis sheet that mm -hmm. I use and, and it comes down to due diligence and understanding the process for due diligence. So, you know, the tool I would say is a checklist and uh, analysis sheet that we focus on whenever we're analyzing a new deal uh, to invest with, whether it's a flip, uh, we have a different spreadsheet for that, whether it's a hold, we have a different spreadsheet for that, whether it's uh, a renovation analysis sheet, it's, it's putting your checklists and all of that stuff together where it can be cookie cutter and you can actually very quickly analyze a deal and, and be able to adjust things based on your own comfort level. So putting a tool in place where you can analyze these things really fast and the quick and dirty approach plus the detailed, right. uh, once you get into it, I think is very, very key because, you know, if you're going to find the good deals, you got to be able to analyze a lot of properties really quickly. Correct. No, I, I love that. And it's, I guess, setting up your processes, right? You know, you, got, you said you got your spreadsheets, but it's, it's if a deal comes across your table, you can say, hey, let's quickly look at this deal. Within 30, within five minutes, I can determine if it's a good deal or not. I don't have to then, you know, go and try and set up a spreadsheet from scratch. And you, you already have your systems in place to, as you said, check off the checklist and see if it's a deal. If, not, if it is a deal, great. If it's not, pass and go on to the next one. Matthew, what's the most exciting project you're working on right now? You know, I'm actually looking at uh, acquiring a, a, another 60-unit property right next to my 30-unit uh, property, which is really interesting because uh, if I'm successful at, at acquiring that building, uh, I can actually do with an easement between the 30-unit mm. and the 60-unit and create a 90-unit building, which wow. actually increases the value by, you know, another 30% because it opens it up because uh, a lot more people are interested in 90 plus units yep. than they are necessarily in a 30 unit and a 60 unit individually, just because it's two separate transactions. Mm -hmm. uh, it takes the same amount of work with each, each one of those transactions to, to pull off. And so uh, it's really interesting whenever you can combine projects or, you know, do something creative to create value for yourself. But I really like that structure. Uh, you know, I also, I also really like my single family homes because I'm buying five a month of these things and they make me a good profit and I'm, I'm building a, a long-term wealth building uh, stream through cash flow and equity and principal reduction with some of my joint ventures which is great 
Fantastic. Matt, I uh, love to hear those type of stories. It's good on you and it sounds like you're doing a lot of deals, which is really, really great work. Matt, well, who is the most influential person in your career? Probably my wife and my kids, but <laughs> they give me a lot of support, you know, on, on that side. And uh, and that support structure is is really important. I have a couple of uh, real estate investor friends of mine also mm-hmm. that I have weekly meetings with that I think is is really, really important to have and, and mastermind with people and talk with people with that same mentality. We talk and think about a lot of the same types of things and bounce ideas off of each other and new and you know new uh, new strategies and you know new issues that come to light that are coming out in, in the investing market uh, are, are very very key and so I, I'd have to say a lot of my investor relationships as they are um, are very influential. Now the book Rich Dad Poor Dad by <laughs> Robert Kiyosaki got me quitting my CPA firm job because I, I realized I was making the wrong kind of income. Right. I was <laughs> trading my time for dollars instead of trading my time for assets that create money, whether I'm working for them or not. Another couple of uh, books, one was Thinking Grow, Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, one mm-hmm. of the most powerful mindset books that I've ever read. Uh, and then How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Very, very important book on how to communicate with other people. Right. That's fantastic, mate. We're, on this show, I talk a lot about Rich Dad, Poor Dad. As that was, again, the same aha moment that I had back in uh, <laughs> 2010, sitting in my cubicle uh, and put me on this path to go down and try and be a real estate entrepreneur and start my own business and really develop that passive income that I can one day quit my day job and, you know, go out and, to, and create long-term wealth. So I, I'm all, all, all ears and I love that hearing that sort of stuff. It sounds like the same sort of story over and over again, but it's true. So fantastic. And Matt, last thing, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? Um, they can go to my website, which is ocgproperties.com or they can email me at invest at ocgproperties.com. That's typically the best way to get a hold of me. I don't like answering my, my cell phone. Uh, I just, there's too much going on throughout the day. And if I don't know your number, I'm not picking up. So, <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Matthew, I'm sure you've given all the international investors out there some fantastic food for thought when coming to buying turnkey properties or finding financing options available to them here in the United States. Thanks for dropping by and chatting with us and we'll catch up soon. No problem. Thanks. Thanks to Matt for dropping by. He gave a great insight into the financing options available for international investors wanting to purchase here in the US. The biggest piece of takeaway information is that there are plenty of options out there for international investors to secure financing for their investment deals. And it's not daunting prospect and you don't have to pay all cash for it. Reach out to Matthew and his team if you want to learn more about his financing programs or want to chat more about his turnkey opportunities with OCG properties he currently has available. As always, all the links that we mentioned on today's show will be summarized in the show notes below. And a summary of our conversation with Matthew will go up on my website at rsnpropertygroup.com. Click on the podcast tab. Thanks again for taking some time out of your day to continue to grow your real estate investing knowledge. I hope you got a lot out of today's show. To continue the conversation with us, follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching RSM Property Group. And remember to leave an iTunes review below as we really would appreciate it as it helps us grow our community of listeners eager to invest in the US. This episode and many more can be found by searching an Aussie's Guide to US Real Estate wherever you podcast. So until next week, take care, be safe, and remember, happy investing. Happy investing.